Have you ever slept on a bad mattress? And in the morning, you feel the pain. Pam and I have had a mattress that, uh, that someone actually gave to us. It was a good quality mattress, and, but it started losing its support, and, and so we were feeling the pain, so, so we decided that we were going to go buy a new mattress. Have you ever tried to buy a new mattress? I cannot believe how many kinds of mattresses there are. There are the coil mattresses, there are the, the foam mattresses, there are the, the coil mattress with the foam, which is the hybrid mattress, there is the firm mattress, there is the pillow top on top of the firm mattress. Do you remember, how many remember water beds? How many had a water bed? Oh yeah. Water beds are really cool because you could heat the water. And on a cold winter's night, you cuddle up into that thing, it was wonderful. Now it did also have its problems. We had one of those, Pam and I, when we first got married, had a, a, a California King waterbed mattress that had none of the fiber fill stuff inside of it, so it just was free flowing. And so it sits in kind of a box and then the rails are on top there, and, but getting out of the bed sometimes was difficult. So we figured out that if, when she wanted out, if I would just go like this on the bed, I would create a surf. And if she rode the wave, she could get out. It was really good. She was, she was um, pregnant with, our, with Christy, our, first, our firstborn, and, and it was toward the end of her pregnancy. And one night she woke me up in kind of a panic. She said, she said, my water broke. I said, are you sure? She said, yes, I'm wet. I said, well, then my water broke too because I'm wet. <laughs> the water bed had sprung a leak and it was like we were sleeping in a wading pool. It was just, it was so great. So we had to go find, we had to go find a new mattress about a month ago. And so we... We went on and Googled to find out how, what's the best way to get a mattress and, and what do you do. And so it said that you got to actually lay on the mattress more than a couple minutes. You have to go into the mattress store. You got to lay down on the mattress and you got to spend like 15 to 20 minutes on the mattress. Laying on your back, on your side, on your stomach. And so we did that. We went in the mattress place and we would lay down and we'd just say, we'll be done in about 15 minutes and 20 minutes. And then we'd get up and go to the next mattress. And, and we'd lay down and we'd go, and it was just crazy because people would walk by and say, hey, how you doing? And, 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 so, and then we'd go to the next mattress store. So if you heard, if rumor was out that Pam and Jack were sleeping around, it's true. <laughs> A lot of different mattress places know us now. So we finally found the one that has the right firmness so that we can get some real good rest. Now that's what we've been doing here for the last five Sundays, including today. We've been talking about a foundation that provides rest. And this is the promise that Jesus made. Then Jesus said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, or carrying, who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Now, a lot of us don't understand this whole thing about yoke, and, and we have a picture here of, of, of a yoke, and, and it's, it's where you take these two oxen. You guys got a picture for me of a yoke? There you go. So you, you take this oxen and, and, you, and you yoke them together because they discovered that if just one ox by itself and maybe two doing separate work cannot do as much as two that are yoked together. It's just this dynamic, this synergy that takes place. And sometimes what they'll do is they'll take a veteran ox and they will tie a rookie ox to that and that rookie ox will learn from the veteran the best way to accomplish this. So now, so now Jesus says this. He says, now I'm going I'm to let you 
be attached to me. And I'm going to show you how to do life. And you don't have to worry about it because when we do life together, what you're going to understand is that I am gentle with you. I will not... I will not tear into you because of your imperfections. I will not berate you, but I will be gentle with you, and I will be humble. And and the wording actually means that I will be a servant to you as we do this. As As you tie to me, I'll show you how to do life, and I will be gentle in the process, and I will serve you in the process. And here's what you will find. You will find that when you felt life was so heavy, suddenly it becomes a lot lighter. It will be light, and you will discover that the yoke that I place on you, what I ask you to do, is easy, and the word actually means to be so comfortable that it was a perfect fit for you. That what I will put you on you to do as we walk together, you will discover, if you trust me, that it's absolutely perfect for you. You were made for this, and it will be a light load. So I discovered in my own life that those moments that I get really tense... When, when I'm really, really feeling the load, it's because I'm not yoked to him in the way that I should be. Because he says this, and then you will find rest for your souls. And that word rest actually means that you come to the end of repeated intensity. Suddenly, it's just, this is good. So what is it about the soul that gets so worked up? that it needs rest. I want to repeat to you a a quote I gave to you in a previous week, and it's this from John Ortberg. The truth is the soul's infinite capacity to desire, capacity to desire is the mere image of God's infinite capacity to give. What if the real reason we feel like we never have enough is that God has not yet finished giving? The unlimited neediness of the soul matches the unlimited grace of God, and our need was meant to point us to God. So you've got this thing inside of you that says, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. We all have that. He is saying that what that is is this this soul person inside of you saying, I need God, I need God, I need God. So here we are, and today you've been worshiping. Some of you have been lifting your hands. Others have closed your eyes. You've been focusing on God because the soul is crying, I got to be with him, I got to be with him, I got to be with him because that brings me rest. That brings me contentment. And so you are focused on that. Now here's our battle. As we go from this place today, The soul is still going to keep crying out, I need, I need, I need, I need. And the spirit part of you will say, and I know exactly what you need, you need God. Let's go there. The fleshy side of you, the body, which which only determines what it's going to do by what it sees and tastes and, and smells and hears and feels, says, oh, I think that is what we need. We we need that thing. I need to have a better job. I need to have a new car. I need to have a better condo. I need to have a better education. I need that girl to marry me. I need that guy to be my boyfriend. I need this thing. I need that. And there's this drive to get, to want, to have. Now, the problem with that is that we begin to believe that, and in our culture certainly validates that feeling The commercialism of our country just says, yeah, you need this, you need this. In fact, you not only need this, you deserve this. So so you've been driving a car for two years. You deserve a much better car than a two-year-old car. Yes, I do. 
And what happens is that we start to take hold of those things and we realize that as we gather them together, we say, if I just have this amount, I will be at rest. We're not at rest. And so we say the solution to that is that I need to have more. For the more we have, the more we think we need because somewhere we feel that if we get enough of this, if we get all of this, then we will be secure for our future and we'll be able to enjoy life the way that we're supposed to enjoy it. But the problem is that we just keep wanting more. So that when Jesus says the yoke that is easy that I'm going to put on you is this thing called generosity, that the generosity will be a perfect fit for you, not too difficult for you, and provide your soul rest, we want to say, as soon as I have all this, I'll be at rest, and then I can be generous. When I have enough, then I'll be generous. And we discover that the number one contender with God for our heart is wealth. And you're going to not find that God ever says wealth is bad. But he said you better be careful because it's going to contend for your soul. So we think that if we have just enough, just the right amount, we will be at rest. Yet the soul is not at rest. Because what we discover is this, that we're not at rest because we have not found the really solid foundation that provides rest. And what that is called is contentment. Contentment is our mind at rest, knowing that God has given us all we need to enjoy today, and he's helping us be ready for what we need tomorrow. And the mind says, I'm okay. I'm content with this because this is exactly what I need today, and God's got me covered for tomorrow. And most of us aren't very good at being wealthy. We're not good at being rich because we're not good at being content. And so Paul, writing to his protege, Timothy, in the first century, says, okay, gather the people together and say, you rich people, this is how you handle your richness, your wealth. Because true followers of Jesus will handle wealth differently than the average rich person. And at this moment, you go, okay, I can check out now because I am not wealthy. Well, that's been part of our battle these last few weeks. We've been talking about the fact that we are richer than we think and it's amazing to me that as I announced to you and proved to you by statistics that, that we in this room are, are part of the top 1% of the wealthy in the world, nobody stood up and gave me a standing ovation for that announcement. Nobody said, yay, we're rich! Because we don't feel rich. And even though we don't feel rich, we have rich person's problems. I have rich person's problems. You want to hear my problems? I have rich person problems. Here are some of my problems. The drive through lane at Starbucks was too long yesterday. That's my rich person problem. Dick's Sporting Goods ran out of my favorite running shoe. That's a rich person's problem. It rained three days of my seven-day vacation. I have a rich person problem. The internet is messing up my download of Netflix. That's a rich person problem. DirecTV called, and the installer will be there tomorrow sometime between noon and January of 2016. <laughs> That's the rich person's problem. You have a rich person's problem if any of your conversations start with this. Delta Sonic, rich person problem. 
My flight, rich person problem. My concert tickets, rich person problem. Wegmans. Ah, yeah. Gotcha. My rich person problem. My hot tub, rich person problem. My walk-in closet, rich person problem. I have these two pair of shoes and rich person's problem. But the problem is much bigger than the line at Starbucks. Because the danger we have in having, as we have discovered, is the migration of our hope in God migrating to our hope in stuff. When Pam and I first started dating, we had known each other really well for two years, and, and she came to me for counseling about her present boyfriend. I said, break up. She did. We went out that night. <laughs> so we started dating, and because, because we had known each other really well already, we were best friends, it was easy for us, even in the first few dates, to hold hands and to cuddle up next to each other and do a little kissy face. It was really nice. But when we would come back onto campus, I would make her scoot over from the middle seat because we weren't yet exclusive and I didn't want anybody to think we were because I wanted all my options open. Yeah, not smart. She moved quick and became pretty clear, and in essence what she said to me is, no yoke, no hope. If we're not exclusive and yoked together, you don't get me. Jesus says, no yoke, no hope. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot love God and wealth. You can only love one or the other. And so we've been talking about how do we keep our hope connected to God, and simply this, we take this yoke of generosity and we do more for others, we give more to others, and we pre-decide that we're going to do that. And now we come to the end of Paul's directive to Timothy, we've gone all the way through this for the last four weeks, and now we come to the spot, which is the aha moment. This is the deal. This is, yes, this is the very strongest momentum or, or motivation that you can have for being generous. And Paul hints at it in the very beginning verses we started with several weeks back. See if you can catch the hint, because here's what he said. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Did, did you see the hint? Let me do it again. Command those who are rich in this present world. If there is a present world, what must follow? Another world. And what happens in this present world has a direct effect on the coming age. 82% of Americans believe that something happens to us after death. And Paul says, how generous we are has a profound effect on the coming age. Now, I want you to catch that. How we are right now with what we have impacts what we will experience in the future. So Paul says to Timothy, command them to do good to be rich in good deeds and be generous and willing to share. We just talked about that. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a what? Firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of life that is truly life. See, this was always a topic of conversation with Jesus. 
He would always let us know how you use the opportunities and the resources you have right now will affect our future life. Not where we're going to end up, but what it's like when we get there. We can trade what we have now temporarily for something that will be a never-ending benefit. And that in itself should be great enough motivation that our hands are loose with what we have so that we can give in every opportunity. So Jesus then makes it clear and he shows us what is at risk. And so Jesus tells this story and Luke records it. And it says this, and he told them this parable. The ground of a certain man produced a good crop and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I had no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not what? Rich toward God. So this guy gets a bonus. This guy's already wealthy. He's got a farm. He's got, he's got property. And the ground, he didn't have nothing to do with it. The ground just sprung up a much better yield than he thought. This guy is rich, and now he's even richer. He's like Richie Rich. It's, it's there. And, and, and he says, I, I don't know what to do. So he goes into the soliloquy. What shall I do? And she says, I got these barns, but they're not big enough. So what I will do is I will... I will Get all of this and provide a way that I can save it and I can consume it later. I mean, look what he says. This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, hey, dude, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. So I will eat, I will drink, and I will be merry. And, you know, we talked about the idea that saving up for the future is a good thing. And when you do it in the wisdom that God provides, it's very important. But in this situation, this is not a good thing. And rarely does God's voice, is God's voice heard in a parable, but at this moment, God speaks. And he says this, you fool. What is a fool? It's someone who leaves God out of it. Because you didn't ask me about any of this, God says. You, 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 didn't, you didn't care about what I thought. You didn't understand what my intention was. You fool. You think you have all this stuff and all this time, but I got news for you. Tomorrow's canceled. He goes, wait, 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 you can't do that because I've got all this stuff, therefore I should have all this time. But time and riches are never commensurate. They, they, they weren't promised that when you have all that stuff, you're going to have all that time to spend it. He said, you had all these opportunities, you had all these opportunities to invest in something that would last forever, but you didn't. And now you're going to die, and that's going to go to somebody, and you're not going to get any credit for it. Because we don't get credit for what we leave, we get credit for what we give. And by the way, when we die, everybody leaves the same amount. Did you know that? You know what that is? All. We leave all of it. There is a total loss 
of everything that is not rich toward God. And this is the, this is the whole brand new concept for these disciples to hear because in the first century, you could go to the temple and bring an offering. You could bring, it, you could bring an offering to Zeus, Apollo, Athena. You could bring it to the priest, and the priest then said well, he would take it and give it to that God, and that God then you could bribe to do whatever you needed to be done by your offering. So it would go to the God. This is a new concept because what Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying is that rich toward God is about being rich toward the people God created. Jesus made that really clear. And he said these words. Luke records it. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Now, you say, well, we all got to just go sell everything we have. Let's all go out today and sell our our houses and our cars and everything we've got. Well, that's not what he's saying because then we'd all be poor. What he's saying is that maybe you change your standard of living. Or you know that you have extra. Go sell that extra because when you do, that when you get to where God has planned for you to be with him in the future, you will have extra waiting for you. You say, well, what is that? What is that reward? You say, I don't know. I can't really tell you what it is, but this is what I think about. If, if you were in a small group with Pam and me, and it was getting close to Christmas time, and we decided that we're going to do gift giving, a gift exchange, we're going to pick names, I guarantee you that you would hope that Pam would get your name. She is an extravagant gift giver. She has a PhD in gift giving. PhD stands for called higher and deeper gifts, like crazy. And she, she just, because she, she wants to make sure that you get quality. She wants to make sure that, you, in fact, she only buys what she herself would love. Because she'll buy them, she'll go, I should get one of those for me. It's a new girl, let's go. She's that extravagant. So here's the deal. I don't know what it means, but when I give to someone who's in need, and God says that's going to be credited to you in the future when you see me after your death or after Jesus returns and takes us back with him, I don't know what that means, except this is I do know, that God is an extravagant giver because if he started by giving us his son, what does he have prepared for us from this point on? To those who are rich toward him. We gain an unimaginable reward when we are rich toward God. But that means, as we've looked these last few weeks, it means that we are above average in our generosity. And there's only one way, really, for us to be rich toward God, and that's we've got to plan it. It, it, you just, it just doesn't happen. We, we just, it's not just spontaneous. There will be those folks who, who, in January, will get a receipt from something they gave to, and they say, oh, I forgot about that. I, I, I was at the city mission and, and, and at their banquet, and, and they presented an incredible thing that's bonkers for Jesus, and, and so I, I gave 50 bucks. I forgot all about it. I got this receipt. Well, that, that, that's accidental giving. So I, I borrow from Andy Stanley because he, he says there's two types of givers, and the first is what's called the 3S giver. The 3S giver is this. First of all, spontaneous. They're emotional. When that need comes to you, they, they give it. I'm glad you do that. I'm, I, that's wonderful because I've been saying, watch this week and give when you have the opportunity. That's good. But it's also sporadic. It's just every once in a while. It just, oh, okay, well, oh, there, there it is. I'll do that. It, it, it's no plan to it at all. And in addition to that, it's sparing. It's okay. I just, I've got a few bucks here left over from what I've done. Here you go. 
When we give that way, we miss the deep opportunities that God said, if you invest in that, you're going to find a benefit in the future. We have some friends uh, who came to, came to me once and, and, and they said, hey, we understand that this person over here is having a tough time. Can you tell us what the needs are? Because we want to donate to, that, to them and, and help them. And, and, they, and they went on to say that, that they take a percentage of their income and they put it aside so they can help people who are in need. It is just part of what they do. It's part of their budget. See, those people are what Andy Stanley would call three P givers. First of all, Generosity is a priority, and it's off the top. It's not what I just have left over. It's, it's, it's our plan, and so we're planning on doing this, and they're not the kind of person who, who when they give, go, oh, man, but I could have used that for... for no, they're excited. They're, they're delighted with the ability to be generous. Secondly, percentage. They pre-decide. We talked about this in a previous message we said, sit down and create a budget which you're going to live off of. Then create a budget with that of what you're going to save. And then create a budget of what you're going to give away. So that it is what you do. So it's not accidental, it is planned. Because if you plan it, God will give you the opportunities. They will be there. Thirdly, it's progressive. If you read Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he's talking about generosity and he says, well, here's the deal. He said, it's like seed. When you give, it's like it's planted and it increases harvest and I give you back more seed as a result. Not so that your lifestyle can get better necessarily and, and, and not so that you become richer because you want to be richer, but because it gives you more opportunity to give to other people because every time you invest, you are also investing in your future. You say, well, was that right motiv motivation? I, I guess it is because he said he's going to reward us. So I guess he figured that'd be great motivation for us. So I get more opportunity, and he gives me more back, and I get more opportunity. In addition to that, go back to our first message. And if you didn't get these messages, please you know, download the podcast. We discovered that generosity can actually change an entire culture. And it's one of the ways that the Christianity changed the Roman Empire because of their generosity. So, so as we give, and as we increase, as we, as we progressively give more, we can change a culture in an addition, set aside what is needed or what we'll enjoy when we leave this earth. So since I borrowed Andy Stanley's formulas, I'm going to also borrow his example. So I'm going to just give you this illustration, and you're going to have to really focus close, so just pay attention. And if you need to write something down, do that. And for some of you, there's math involved, so this is going to be difficult for you. But you just stay with me on this, okay? Just stay focused. The person next to you is sleeping. Wake them up. They don't want to miss this. Okay? So I get one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten dollars. And God says, I want you to be generous. So Pam and I pre-decide well, we'll give a dollar out of those 10. We'll give a tenth. And then, God, what? give us wisdom on how we use the other nine. Some of you didn't get it. Let me do that again. 
It's the math, isn't it? Okay. Ten? We gave God a tenth. You say, what do you do with the tenth? Well, we believe and have lived this way ever since we've known each other that Jesus made it clear and the law made it clear and before the law made it clear that there's this deal that God works out that if I take a tenth and I give it to him and especially in, give it to the community of faith so that it supports you in what's going on in your life and when you're having tough times, he said, I will take your tenth as you're rich toward me and I will make the other nine work much better than when you had the ten. That's his promise. Now watch what happens. While God then gives us and gives us, as we said earlier, he says, well, I, you cannot give me, so I will bless you. And so now the, these turn into $100 and, and $1,000. But I don't reduce my percentage. In fact, what I do now is I increase my percentage, so now it's 20% or 30% or 40%. I know people that do that. You know why they do that? First of all, they don't want to hoard what God has given. And secondly, they don't want it left in their barns when they die. They want it to go ahead and to change cultures and to be something that God has planned for them in the future. So what, what does God want in all of this? God wants our heart. Luke goes on to say that for where your treasure is, this is what Jesus said, for where your treasure is, what? It's where your heart is. See, if I want my heart with God, then I got to take this stuff and I got to put it where God wants it to go because that's where God is and my heart there is with God. If God gets our heart when God gets our wealth and something amazing happens when I give, my heart begins to change. And that's why I've said in this challenge in these last five weeks, Every day, look for opportunity to give. God's going to give you. It, it could be something small. It could be something large. But just give. This week, Pam and I, and this time it was for one of our kids. I've been giving you, telling you what's been going on as God is giving us opportunity to give. This time it was for our kids. Our, our son's in a graduate program. He's a poor graduate student, and his computer crashed. And so I said, God, we need to get him a new computer, and I didn't have enough money to really get him something expensive. So I said, show me, and I went to, to a, a place to, to get him something, and they had this huge sale, and I walked out with a $600 computer for 200 bucks. That was a God deal. So we sent it to him. And he texted us last night. And here's the thing that got me. He said, I so appreciate your generosity. One day, I hope to be as generous as you are. See, now that's the deal. Look for the opportunities. Because what happens is, when you give in Jesus' name, people not only thank you, but they realize that God was involved. Secondly, I, I challenge you, please, take your budget. And if you don't know what that word budget means, we have a Financial Peace University course coming up in the fall. Take that and learn how to budget. Predecide a percentage of what you will give away. That's how we do life together. So I, mean, I remember reading of this woman whose husband died, and so she planned this wonderful funeral for him. It was a great funeral, and... and and then she, she had him buried, and she created a really nice headstone for him and wrote on it, and she meant it, rest in peace. Short time later, she gathered with 
the executor of the will, only to discover that her husband has, was having an affair and everything he owned went to her. The lady was so livid, she went back to the cemetery and with the little bit of money she had left, she had further inscription placed on the, on the stone and it said this, rest in peace until we meet again. Why should we be known as the generous church on the hill? Why should we know that, that that is how we do life together? Because generosity is the foundation we need to rest in peace. Knowing that when we leave this place, we've put our stuff in the right place, when we leave this place, we will have no regrets. But instead, there will be waiting for us a very loving and exquisite God, ready to share his unimaginable delights with us because we loved the people he created. So can I give you a command? Paul's words from Timothy, to Timothy, that I now give to you. Do good. Be rich in good deeds. Be generous and always, always willing to share. And in this way, you will lay up treasure for yourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that you may take hold of the life that is truly life. Would you stand? So now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be blessing and glory and honor and power forever and ever. Amen.